From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Have you ever wondered why certain textbooks are chosen and how they get chosen for huge classes like freshman English at The Ohio State University? Today, we talk to David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen, authors of Writing Analytically, which is used in freshman English at The Ohio State University. So stay tuned to find out how a textbook is created and then gets distributed. It'll be more fun than you think. David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen are the authors of Writing Analytically, a textbook that Ohio State University, among many other colleges, uses for first-year composition. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Thanks. We're happy to be here. Well, this is a book that is described as a brief rhetoric and yet weighs in it, I think, 450 pages, <laughs> something along that. So rhetoric <laughs> is not something to be taken lightly or quickly. <laughs> But your book says that it aims to use writing as a way to make people think well as well as write well, and that uh, there are many strategies in the book that describe thinking skills that employ writing. So that's the idea behind the book of writing analytically. What made you decide to write writing analytically? Originally, we were... um we still are co-directing a writing program at Muhlenberg College. It's a small liberal arts college. And we had um, opened up a writing across the curriculum program, and we needed to train faculty to start teaching writing-related courses. And so we got funding to hold a series of summer seminars on writing uh, that involved faculty from all different disciplines. And when we started talking to them, we discovered that uh, there was no common language for talking uh, among ourselves about what we really value, uh, in the academy anyway, as writers. And uh, I can remember one, one subject that came up all the time was that faculty wanted students to have ideas. And so we said, well, you know, what does it mean to have an idea? And... In some ways, that was the birth of the book, because faculty from all different disciplines had very differing notions on uh, what an idea was. One psych prof said, uh, you mean uh, like a PhD thesis? Do we expect 18-year-olds to have that? And it was at that time that Jill and I really started thinking about um, what's involved in idea having and how we can help uh, faculty to ask for it in ways that are productive and students to um, try and formulate some of their thinking in that way in ways that are productive. Yeah, we discovered that, um, you know, both of us were trained in rhetoric and literature. We teach both. And, you know, so we came to Muhlenberg with a vocabulary out of composition studies, um, the process movement, um, the idea of basic writing errors. But we discovered that to our faculty, those words meant different things. And so when we tried to talk about process, they took that to mean, um, and they actually said this, but that meant that we kind of wanted our students to sit in a circle and share their feelings about DNA. So there was this really big gap between what faculty outside of English thought um, that teaching, thinking, and writing um, in a, a writing course was really about. Why do you think it is that they, to use a phrase like that, sit in a circle and talk, talk about their feelings about DNA, I mean, that seems to be a really odd way to think about a writing course to me. I mean, my background is in writing, but 
What do you think has gotten English classes and composition classes the reputation of someplace where you would sit around and talk about your feelings about DNA? There's a lot of ways to approach that question. Um, <clears throat> I mean, to, to overstate one part of it, I think uh, C.P. Snow had this article about a number of years ago about the two cultures. And one culture was the sciences and the other culture was the humanities. And I think that there is an assumption, what, what we would call um, an expressivist assumption on the part of people in the sciences, uh, or at least some people in the sciences, you really need to qualify all this, um, that that's what we do. And so if it's not scientific, it must be completely irrational and emotional. Um, and, of course, you would know. I mean, any writer knows that you're always organizing your ideas. You're always trying to suggest why you think what you think. And so to some extent, we were trying, we've been trying to find a language to suggest that everybody is pretty much involved in the same procedure. And that is, in fact, where we're coming from. So we don't really believe very strongly, the book doesn't believe either, that um, disciplinary differences or disciplinary writing protocols are essentially or fundamentally different. That what makes good writing is pretty much the same in all disciplines. And that it's not really a matter of um, this expressivism. Yeah, and we thought that, you know, once we started trying to look critically at the language that we'd inherited as graduate students and people we really admired, you know, people like Peter Elbow, who taught a generation of, of people how to teach writing by giving students more space, we started to see why members of other disciplines, like, say, economists, thought that there really wasn't any, that there were no procedures inside the process. It sounded to them like you just sort of let the student go um, and hope for the best. How did you go about then writing the book once you decided to write it? What was your process for it? How did you sit down and work together about creating the manuscript? Well, we, um, I'll start. The, the whole, this is actually all very funny. We, we, um, we started writing the book because a, uh, a sales rep came around. And, you know, he had the usual argument, well, your ideas are better than the ones we're trying to sell you, then why didn't you do something about it? Um, and so uh, we did. And we thought that the book would be maybe a hundred-page um, monograph, <laughs> mostly for faculty, um, to try to find for them a sort of lingua franca, a, um, a shared language about the processes um, that experienced thinkers know how to use. Um, that would use a language that was not the province of any particular discipline. That was the goal. And we started the book, the very start of the book, what's now at the center of it was the beginning, and that was to um, try to dismantle the way that the concept of thesis had been taught in the academy, which we thought had very, very little to do with what actual writers do when they sit down to write. And in part that's because uh, that idea of thesis is that the idea that we're to uh, was firmly wed to five paragraphs one, which probably still is the governing protocol for writing and we think is um, a terrible procedure to follow if you want to have ideas. And so um, I think both of us, we've been teaching freshman composition for a number of years in graduate school and then at Muhlenberg. And um, our students who came in and used five-paragraph form, uh, for the most part, produced execrable writing. And so we spent a lot of time trying to think about what kind of advice could we give students for thinking about how to have ideas and organize those ideas that wasn't going to be that sort of slot filler, 
um, attenuated thinking that five-paragraph form produces. Yeah, another lucky thing for us was that, you know, at Muhlenberg, we're, um, we're fortunate enough to be able to train writing center tutors who then also um, team teach with faculty members in first-year seminars. And so both of us, um, in the early days of the book, were learning a lot by watching how these um, students, these peers of our first-year students, were talking to them about what they could do um, with their writing. Um, and so, in fact, some of the ideas in the book, like the one with the, the kind of overblown but perhaps necessary name, The Method, um, which is all about looking for patterns of repetition, um, that came to us from work that we, we began to see our writing assistants um, doing in conversations in the writing center with students. By the way, the book was almost um, not published because of our attack on five-paragraph form and our original um, editor, and, and we had a kind of argument about that, and they agreed to send out our attack to various voices in the field um, to see if those people would even be interested in teaching a book that didn't endorse five-paragraph form. Yeah. And this continues. You know, it's funny how your things happen in your life, and they just keep growing and developing. But, you know, now one of the things that we do is we, um, in Indiana, we help train high school teachers from across the state who are teaching in the, the dual credit course, the course that counts toward Indiana's first year writing if you're in high school. Um, and it's, it's really a challenge um, to help high school teachers get out from under the idea that a good piece of writing um, has a predetermined thesis and then three examples that support it as opposed to testing it. Um, and it's been really... Um, illuminating to have the chance to sort of talk to people, teachers all over the country on the ground, trying to find a way to tell students that there are other models um, that they can feel safe with that will produce more sophisticated thinking. Okay. Let's come back to that question uh, that they were posing you, what would happen when they sent it out to people across the universities. What was, you know, briefly the reaction from people with your five-paragraph attack I take it it was positive enough to get it published, but what were some of the reactions that you got? <laughs> it was it was great. It was one of these happy moments in your early career. They all said, "Thank God, somebody's finally actually going to say this." Um, and so the publishing company had to admit that they weren't going to be alienating um, their clientele by allowing somebody to critique the form. And so at that point, they started talking about um, changing the audience of the book from people in right in upper-level writing intensive courses and faculty and making it a, a book for people who are um, in the first year of college writing. Yeah, and at this point, it would have to be said that an interesting thing about being a writer who's also trained as an academic is that, you know, we discovered we had no idea how to write a textbook. Um, and luckily, <laughs> we were assigned this wonderful guy um, who was an anthropology PhD but happened to be working for Harcourt, which was our publishing company at the time. And it took three years um, with him, you know, sort of talking back and forth with us about how we could um, develop these ideas in a way which would be accessible. Okay, and that that takes an anthropological viewpoint <laughs> then to uh, to study people. <clears throat> and you know, how do you talk about writing? I mean, that's a, that's a, actually a difficult, you know, rhetorical question. Right, and you know, interestingly, that era when we were first writing the book, which is to say <clears throat> the, the late eighties, early nineties was the era in which a lot of um, writing profs were involved in the so-called ethnography movement. And the idea was that instead of telling other disciplines what to do, you would actually go out and study what their writing practices were. 
Um, and so in an interesting way, it was just a fortuitous match, I think, really, to have this anthropologist kind of look at the writing culture that we were trying to talk to. And, of course, most of our ideas were, in one way or another, generated by the summer seminars, where, again, we were working not with a bunch of English profs um, or graduate students, but we were actually working with faculty with PhDs in all different disciplines. What kind of feedback did they give you during those summer sessions that changed the way that you were approaching the text? I think the most important one, and Dave will probably have different memories, is how poignant um, their fear was. Um, and once they were told the things that, you know, composition specialists always tell faculty from other disciplines, that you're not teaching writing <coughs> by circling punctuation errors, you're not teaching writing by teaching grammar, we collected their journals and we would get comments like this. So what you two want us to do is to enter the chaos of our students' thinking um, and learn to think with them. And we said yes. Um, but that anxiety was very, very real and moving. And uh, another one, uh, a phrase I remember is a, is a fact member wrote, um, but I want to teach them something. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, information really does matter and we do have things to teach. But... It's probably true that in, that working with writers, especially younger writers in a writing course, is as Jill suggests, you know, asking that person to enter into the chaos um, that all of us go through when we sit down and produce words on a subject. Yes. And that's something that makes uh, writing more difficult to be taught because you're having to, as you say, enter into the chaos of your students thinking, which is a much more, to me, subjective, uh, perhaps, way of thinking about it than if you grade via grammar, which is an older way. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so that would had to have been a change for a lot of people, and I can see that garnering some disagreement. Well, if we were going to pursue your line of um, back to premises, I mean, in some ways, we're asking faculty to respond imaginatively to students' writing, that is to try and imagine what it is the student is working through and trying to think about. And I think that, you know, the imaginative response is um, shared and collegial and collaborative. It's not particularly hierarchical. And the normal sort of judgmental grading response is just the opposite. We were really influenced in, by Nancy Summers. Um, among others, whose um, early study of teacher comments on student papers um, indicated that, by and large, they were pretty mean-spirited. And her theory was that English, even English profs, when they sit down to read a student paper, they're sort of unwilling to bring to that paper the same desire to understand that they would bring, for example, to a complicated literary text. Um, and we shared... Um, some of those essays with our faculty. So there was no need for them to think that, you know, this was our point of view, that, but that there was some research out there indicating that there was something wrong with the way we, we went around reading student writing. David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen are the authors of Writing Analytically, which is now, I believe, on its way to its seventh edition. Right? Yes. How has the book changed from edition to edition as you look back uh, across it? You said you started writing it in the 80s. What do you, would you say are the differences in it from edition to edition in a general sense? Well, originally we were really interested in thinking about uh, and leading with thesis and evidence. 
And the primary claims we wanted to make were that a thesis was not static, as it is in five-paragraph form, because the function of evidence is to stimulate the thesis and qualify it and, and evolve it. We call it the evolving thesis. But the more we thought about these matters, the more cognitive we became. And in later editions, I guess starting about the third or fourth edition, so, yeah. um, we found ourselves you know, writing chapters with titles like Observation, um, where it became clear to us that you know, observation is not natural. It's a learned process, and you can even break it into steps that will make you a more astute observer. Yeah, and, and you know, so talking about the book getting longer, I mean, that's one of the reasons. An interesting thing I think about writing a textbook is that um, you keep being asked to reinvent it. You know, not to go out and write another book. And so when we sat down to to do a, a revision, we really thought about you know what was missing, and we thought one of the things that was missing was. Um, what to do about um, smart, well-intentioned students who sit in your class and sort of don't understand why the person next to them seems to always have something to say and they feel that they don't. And this really took us to observation strategies. You know, what do good thinkers and writers do when they look at something? What causes them to notice things in ways that people who are less practiced um, don't know how to do? This is Writer's Talk from The Ohio State University, with my guests David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen, authors of the textbook Writing Analytically, which is used in hundreds of classrooms at The Ohio State University for freshman English. One question that I've often asked people who teach composition is, from the beginning of the class to the end of the class, what kind of changes do you see in the students? And so for you, I'm going to change that question a little bit to say, what do you how do you want students to change from the beginning of a class using your text writing analytically to the end of it? Well, we start out with a rule which we think makes big changes, which is to say that we ask them to stop judging things. We ask them to get rid of the like dislike, um, boring, agree-disagree response. We think a lot of students are um, kind of disabled um, by feeling that they have to say something. And so given the culture, the sort of gladiatorial opinion-swapping culture of which they are part, they tend to lead with judgments, which we argue sort of disables thinking. We try to be out front about this. And so that's thing number one. We hope that over the course of the semester, students' response will be, well, this is what I find interesting, as opposed to this is what I like or don't like. We also want to dismantle negative attitudes towards analysis. You know, it's what Wordsworth Wordsworth has this line about, we murder to dissect. And for us, that's the enemy. That In fact, we think that analyzing things is constructive. It constructs understanding. It's not destructive. And that anything can be analyzed. And if you analyze it, it's going to make it more interesting. So we're really sort of talking about, we have a, or a, a section, it used to be a chapter called Habits of Mind. We're really interested in sort of trying to get students to be more metacognitive, and to think about the thinking and the writing that they're trying to do. And this is really challenging, and this is where I think we're, we hope we're as sympathetic as we can possibly be with students as writers, but it really means being willing to accept uncertainty. We hope as the semester goes by that a student can start out looking at something, something in the media, a story, a film, whatever, um, not really knowing what they're going to say and understanding that uncertainty is fruitful, um, that ideas come from starting out um, with not being sure what there is to know. 
on the other hand, um, the schematics that we offer them, the thinking schemes, are, you know, they're quite programmatic. And so we're not sort of throwing them into chaos. We're sort of suggesting that there are a series of steps that a writer can go through to make meanings that are not superficial. And so, and those are available to everyone. And so I, we, we're sort of hoping that this sort of democratic ethos that's, that we do in fact embrace is, is evident in the way that we're trying to ask people to think about writing. And the concrete out- outcome in our institution is that um, students leave first-year seminars where they sometimes use our book. It's not, not required. Um, faculty choose the books that they wish um, with a shared vocabulary. And so they can talk to each other and in future courses. There, there's really a handful, I, I don't know what, maybe a dozen if, um, of sort of primary um, heuristics, which we tried to name in a way which kind of reflected epistemology. So a simple one is notice and focus. Um, the idea that you start with not what do I think, but what do I notice? And you notice as much as you can, and then focusing means, well, what, what are the things that I notice do I think is most important? And, and students who have that available to them as a, as a procedure um, are usually more confident um, and do better. And that builds. So later we talk about um, one that we call 10-on-1. And the idea there is that it's better to make 10 points about a single issue or example than the same related claim about, you know, 10 different ones. And that's just getting some people to think in depth. And so, you know, if I asked you to come up with 10 points about anything, you'd come up with a lot more detail and start to tell me things I hadn't noticed. And if I asked you to come up with three points, which is, of course, what five paragraph form does. Okay. Besides a giant party, what happens when a textbook like yours is adopted by a huge program like Ohio State's that uh, is, you know, a, a giant in- investment? What's your response when something like that happens to this textbook that you've worked on? Well, one answer is that uh, we then see that as an opportunity to get more feedback from programs on how to think more about this subject because to us it's still sort of amazing how impoverished the language is for thinking about these issues. And so, we, I mean, without sounding too much like Pollyanna, it's an opportunity to meet people who are like-minded and talk to them about these things. Every time we go to Ohio State and do a gig, we come back full of ideas. That's the only reason, really, that we want, that we'll do it. Well. <laughs> or not the only reason, but it's a big reason. We also like Eddie. No. Yeah. And, we've, and we, we like coming to Ohio State. We have a good time. But, you know, it's been – we've also been lucky in that when we – the first big adoption for the book was Indiana, uh, Bloomington, and the company was willing, you know, to get behind us – to help sponsor us to go out and do workshops or whatever people might need. And they've been willing to do that over, you know, the 20-some years that um, the book's been in print. And that's just been, been great. Um, we teach at a small institution. We have a certain type of student. Um, when we come to Ohio State, we meet all kinds of graduate students, MAs, P- M- MFAs, PhDs. It's very, very helpful to us. Okay. And what has been – the last question I have is – what has been some of the feedback you've gotten from the students specifically? Uh, we had talked about the feedback that other instructors, people in the field have given you. What do the students say when you meet with them? Well, let's see. That's interesting. Um, we, we tend to meet mostly with 
young graduate students very often, some of them teaching their first college level course, some of them more experienced. Um, and I think initially some of them um, think that what the book's asking students to do might be too difficult. Um, and, you know, our position has been that, you know, you could actually teach this book in high school and, and people do. Um, sometimes they're worried, particularly the section of the book that's called Counterproductive Habits of Mind, um, which is pretty harsh about things like judging. Um, they're worried that that might um, frighten students. And so we sort of talk openly about that. A, a lot of students in, our, in my classes are initially freaked out by the chapter that has to do with working with weak thesis statements. And it identifies uh, five types of weak thesis statements. And they initially think that those are all the thesis statements that they always come up with. And so I think initially they're, um, they're dislodged. It's certainly the case that um, a number of them are very anxious when they read the attack on five paragraph form. And, you know, we now have a little sort of proleptic discussion of that in the first chapter of the book, just so they can kind of um, begin to grapple with what happens when you take away the security blanket at the very beginning. Especially because a lot of people seem to wish to argue, um, particularly high school teachers, that if you have very young writers, five paragraph form at least gives them some modicum of order. And our position is that that's like saying that, you know, giving somebody a near-fatal virus so that they can develop the antibodies is a good idea. I mean, it, it's very, very difficult to outgrow it. And so that, there's always a discussion about that. You know, can you, you know, teach students some of these more primitive forms and then, you know, help them outgrow them? And that's, that's a tough question. David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen, I thank you very much for talking to us today about your book, Writing Analytically, which is used at Ohio State and by the other colleges and universities for first, second year composition, even in high schools, as you've mentioned. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. We enjoyed it. This is called When You've Got Trouble.
tell you a story Make it up as I go Or I'll sing you a song That I know that you know It goes my heart is tangled all around you When you've got trouble, I've got trouble too listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. For more information about my guests, David Rosenwasser and Jill Stephen, visit www.writerstalk.org. The song you heard at the end was by Liz Longley, an artist with six string concerts last year and an artist this year. You can learn more about her at writerstalk.org as well. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. <laughs>